It is so good to see you. It really, <clears throat> really is. I doubt you follow the details of my life very closely. But if you did, you'd know that my wife and I spent seven month, weeks, <laughs> and two days uh, in Ethiopia. We got back a little over two weeks ago, and uh, we finalized the adoption of Mercy. So we, we traveled, we went to Ethiopian federal court and raised our hand and, and said yes to the right questions and got stamped and took custody. So we spent about five weeks in a guest, a one-room guest house with uh, Mercy, having fun, figuring this out, while we waited for immigration to issue her a passport, cute little baby passport. And then the U.S. Embassy reviewed all the documents, uh, make sure there was no instances of fraud, made sure she qualified under the U.S. definition of an orphan, and, uh, and then issued her a visa, a, a unique visa that allows her, when she steps down on American soil for the first time, makes her a citizen. So it was very cool to stand before the U.S. Embassy and raise your right hand and, and hear them say at the end, your, your adoption is final and complete. And then she kind of says, <clears throat> she kind of says, it's very difficult to reverse this. <laughs> okay, I, we have no place. Uh, but in honor of Barb, I should probably show you some pictures, right? <laughs> it's just kind of how we do things. Our first trip to Target, <laughs> getting ready for Halloween. So, that's Mercy. She, uh, oh. man, oh man, oh man. She couldn't be here this morning. She's studying for the SAT. She's just, now, we are having so much fun. What a, what a blessing. She's so cute, almost perfect. If only she was a boy. <laughs> Come on. I mean, if she was a boy, she'd have access to more jobs. She could make more money. She could be a leader. She could be a pastor. She could, I mean, she'll look cute. She'll be, you know, she may be able to have children and cook. <laughs> I don't believe a word of that. I don't believe a word of that. And, uh, but, but maybe half the world does. And... And so we celebrate, yay, and wonderful, but, but there are realities today in our world that do not reflect the heart of God as it looks at the two, at male and female, he created them in the image of God. The India, India's most recent census data came out in 2011, and there were these shocking, 
uh, gender ratios. And they hadn't been great before. And they just kind of reached an all-time low to the point where you're like, not like, oh, that's weird. There must be something in the water. But not that's different from, the, like, what's going on in India? There's, there's one part of India where there are 776 girls for every 1,000 boys. In America, it's about 960 for every 1,000. They say 600,000 girls go missing in India every year based on what they should be. Uh, two New York Times correspondents moved to Beijing, China in 1989, and, and soon after getting there, they kind of witnessed the Tiananmen Square massacre, which was just plastered on front pages all across the world as this, you know, horrible thing, much like what we're seeing in North Africa and, and the Middle East, and, and this human rights debacle. And, and, uh, and, but as they continued to write and research in China, they found out that the same amount of people who died in Tiananmen Square, that same amount of girls die every week, every week of the year for being girls, 39,000 a year. They write in their recent book, Half the Sky, the global statistics on the abuse of girls are numbing. It appears that more girls and women are now missing from the planet precisely because they're female than men were killed in all the battles of the 20th century. The number of victims of this routine gendercide far exceeds the number of people who were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. It's just a bad time in the world to be a girl. So, how does this happen? There are some economic realities that are far from most of us that don't justify it, but help you get into their head. And in China, there's a one-child policy because the country's population was just ballooning. Ethiopia doubled in population in like 50 years, and it's one of the reasons why it has per capita the highest number of orphans in the world. And so it's just difficult for countries to, to, to grow at, at, with these paces. So China said one child. Well, China doesn't have like strong retirement structures or social security. And so the way that moms and dads live beyond their ability to earn a living is through their children taking care of them. Their male children who take care of them. So if they have a girl, their girl will marry and their family will take care of his parents and they'll be left. And so, you begin to see how this happens. When we were in Ethiopia, where many families would have six or seven kids, there wasn't enough food, enough money to go around. And so, if you can only send two kids to school, you'll send the boys. Because similar there, they were the ones that will provide for you later. If you only have so much money for medicine, you will give it to the boys and... Thankfully, we've come a long way. I mean, ladies, you've been able to vote in this country for 90 years. Almost 40% of our history. Yeah, this, this isn't here. 
But here's where, here's where I interestingly see this enough. I, I work with beautiful, wonderful 11, 12, 13, 14-year-olds. And here's one interesting place I still see this lingering. 12-year-old boys know it is inappropriate to talk derogatorily about someone because of their ethnicity or race or ability. They know that well. They may do it from time to time, but they know what they're doing. But what's interesting is to hear 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old boys talk with, with nonchalance and regularity about to say to a friend, stop being a girl. No one raises an eyebrow at that. They know what you mean, and it's not a good thing. You're being weak. You're being emotional. You're being this. You're being that. Don't. So for all the things that we look back on, human, if the humanity family looks back, there are times in our history where we go, oh, man, we kind of blew it there. We really missed the boat there. We used this exact book to support slavery at points in our history. Ooh, that wasn't good. We shouldn't have done that. But this particular one seems to have a lingering effect in the world today. Now, this is not, I'm not on a mission because of mercy. This isn't a political message about equal pay or the rights of girls. Not that those aren't important. This message today is about Jesus. In any 20, 25-week study of Jesus through the eyes of the people encountered him would not be complete if we did not come to the story the issue, the flavor we experience today. You see, all throughout history, humanity has had these sophisticated and even primitive ways of categorizing itself. There's some grid we develop implicitly that helps us make sense of people. And so some are in and some are out, and some have power and some don't. And based on whatever we value, education, weight, you know, uh, gender, skin color. Throughout history, this, we've just kind of grouped each other this way. What we see in Jesus is a conspicuous absence of the grid. Oh, there was a grid during his day, as we will see. There was very much a grid of who's in, who's out, and who's up, and who's down. But what we see in Jesus time and again is this conspicuous absence of the grid. What you see in Jesus is a scandalous, generous inclusivity of anyone who would follow him. Where the, the proximity he allowed you or the prominence he gave you in his kingdom was not based on what you brought to the table, but on how you came to the table. And this is what often put him at odds with even religious leaders who were in and who were up in the grid, and yet in his world didn't get that kind of treatment because they were proud of and confident and put stock in what they brought to the table, their pedigree, their this, their that, and, and yet they did not, how they came to the table was not a posture that allowed them to experience or see Jesus for who he was. The radical message of Jesus, then and now, is that in Christ, 
There is no Jew or Greek or American or Chinese or Ethiopian. There is no slave or free. There is no male nor female. There is no educated or illiterate. There is no royalty, no poverty, no thin, no overweight. No, in Christ, unlike any other place on earth, all are one and all are equal. At the beginning of Holy Week, the week where Jesus' pursuit of people, irregardless of their place on society's grid at the time, went the distance, where Jesus walked a difficult and dark road on behalf of those like us who, in some way or another, at some point or another, have been invalidated by the grid. So I want us to, in preparation for this week, to go back and to see another example of this in real time. Look at the significance of it and, and, and see what insight we can take as we head into this, this week. If you would turn with me to Luke 8.1, this is page 1023 in your pew Bible. Luke 8.1, after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, capital T, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now to us, this reads fairly sweet. What happened next? But to a first century Palestinian uh, observer, hearer, reader, this violates all sorts of, of norms. That women would be mentioned by name in first century liter is, literature is incredibly rare across that section of the world. You will find very few women mentioned by name in any, even extra biblical literature of that period of that time. Most women who were mentioned were mentioned in relationship to either their husband, so so-and-so, the wife of Herod's housekeeper, or in relation to their children, so-and-so, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That is what gave them kind of a reason to be mentioned in the story. And yet you see in this part of Jesus' traveling disciples, women who are mentioned by name, who have left their day-to-day -day world and are part of Jesus' ministry leadership team. In fact, the first person mentioned in the list, which in most literature of this time was like a, a position of prominence, so, so a lot of 
the way you made your point was to repeat something multiple times or to put it at the beginning of the list and to kind of rank it. And so Mary Magdalene, who we're going to look at today, is mentioned 14 times in Scripture and often in a bunch of lists of women. Every instance except one, she's the first person in the list. She's probably single because you even see the other women in the list who the wife... Susanna, the, in most places they would list who they were related to. So the fact that, that Mary is not mentioned with anyone seems to suggest that she's, she's single. She also had seven demons that had come out. There's two ways you can look at this. Seven in, in the Hebrew world is a number and it's also kind of a symbol. As, as you see seven show up throughout scripture, it, it, it kind of means wholeness or completeness. And so what they're saying is either she had a ton of demons come out or this picture of almost complete possession, meaning the degree to which, you know, the place from which Jesus had rescued her was, was far more significant than for most people. Now, this would have given her an ostracized, uh, almost an unclean status in that Jewish world. So whatever in her life led her to this point where she was so influenced by darkness and possessed by darkness, um, we don't know if that was voluntary of her, of her own self or whether that kind of came at the hands of someone else. But whatever, how that would have manifested itself would have rendered her unclean. And so at the, for, at the top of the list is a single, formerly unclean woman traveling with Jesus as a disciple. This is insane. One commentary writer says this, For her to leave home and travel with the rabbi was not only unheard of, it was scandalous. Yet it was an intended part that women be witnesses from the earliest part of his ministry until his death and benefit from his teaching and healing. Jesus' lack of a grid is evidenced here. One other person writes, the world order is being overturned from the highest political power to the deepest cultural patterns, and it begins with this new community. It will be these women, the last, who become first, who will be entrusted with the resurrection message. So I just want you to know that she shows up in the middle of Jesus' life, in the regular things. And now some people have taken Mary Magdalene and kind of painted this scandalous woman, you know, who bare Jesus' love child, and, and it makes for good fiction, but here's why that's probably very, very far from the truth. Jesus' opponents loved to jump on anything that he was doing to kind of bring down his reputation, right? So anything that he was doing that was kind of like off or, 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 or wrong, they were jumping on. And yet they, nev they, and they find a, a lot of things. You eat with sinners. You heal on the Sabbath. You call yourself the Son of God. You teach without the authority. You, but they never mention, and Mary, you guys are always off, you know, flirting and this never comes up, which, which says, for the most part, this is a non-issue. In fact, there's nothing weird written about Mary in that sense until 150 years after the time of Jesus. So the most, all eyewitnesses never go there. 
Let's jump ahead to uh, Holy Week. We are going to go to, uh, let's go to Matthew 27, 55. This is page 988. So we've come into Holy Week. So this, this day, Palm Sunday, would have been the day that Jesus made his, his you know, procession into Jerusalem. So this was a very popular day, a good day, a crowded day in terms of followers of Jesus being in close proximity to him. You need to know this. Monday would have been the Last Supper where the 12 disciples were, were with him. And, and as the, the days progressed we will kind of revisit some of, these, some of these people. But I want you to know that when we come to the execution, I want you to see the list of people who are at the actual cross. Now think of this. If Jesus is being crucified, then that means in enough people's mind, he is an enemy of the state. So usually when you capture the ace of spades of a, of a rebellious rogue group, his top associates are very unlikely to attend his execution, right? They're not like seated in the front row. They're gone. This is not a good day to be associated with this guy. And yet, who do we see at the cross? Matthew 27, 55. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. In John's telling, this is where he tells his mother to be cared for by John and for John to care for his mother. Of all four tellings of the crucifixion story, only one author puts one male disciple at the scene. They didn't have something else going at the moment. What you see is as Holy Week progresses, the crowd of people that is willing to be associated with Jesus dwindles. The male disciples who had been given especially positions of prominence and leadership are conspicuously absent. And yet a woman who had been delivered from much and who had left her world, had means and had committed herself to following Jesus and to supporting Jesus, she's there. Let's go to the burial, Matthew 27, 59, just a couple verses later. Joseph of Arimathea took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. Wherever Jesus goes this week, Mary goes. Not many can say that. If you go to Matthew 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to look at the tomb. 
If you jump to verse 5, the angel says to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. The view of women at that point in history is much like it is in much of the world today. They were viewed as property. They couldn't vote. Their testimony was not valid in court because they couldn't be trusted. And so I, you don't see Jesus coming out of the tomb going, Oh, ladies, hey, is there any guys here? Because I should probably see one of them first. This is going to be a PR nightmare. No. Jesus trusts. God sovereignly allows Mary to be the first person, the only person who was with Jesus at every key element of Holy Week. Did Jesus validate Mary because she was a woman? Did Jesus validate Mary and, and allow her proximity and prominence because she was a woman? I don't think so. I think he didn't invalidate her because she was a woman. It's not like it gave her special access, but it didn't restrict her from any access. And Jesus does not tell his disciples to go fight for rights and to do all these things. He just lives it himself regardless of what society's view would, would culturally allow. Jesus is establishing a new cultural reality, a new kingdom, a new community. And in this community, it is most known for love. It is most known for a conspicuous absence of the grid. And Jesus' closest followers reflect this. You see one of everyone. Being a woman was not the only way that people could be invalidated. It wasn't then and it's not now. But you see among Jesus' followers, the disciples, the people he allows himself to be associated with, this, you have, Matthew, the tax, isn't he, you have, wasn't she a formerly, they're all here. The most unlikely bunch, the most diverse bunch, a perfect bunch. In Jesus' kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. This Holy Week, I would say in the most respectful way possible, act like a girl. Act like a girl. Mary's picture of devotion and the disciples' absence from the events at the end of the week show us she's the role model. She's the hero. She's the example. And I think Jesus kind of delighted in that fact. That once again, there was a reflection of his kingdom to the world that on first glance was like, eh, did you have to talk to a Samaritan? 
Did you have to have it be, you know, it's, it's very right and fitting. Is that true of the church today? Yes, I believe there's one of everyone. Could it be said that we are the most scandalous, most generous, inclusive group on the planet? Probably the place in people's world where, the, where they experience the grid being completely irrelevant. That no matter who you are, what you are, where you've been, what you've done, the only thing that matters is how you come. 